thank you, Robin. Thank you, ladies. That was beautiful. Thank you for blessing us and getting us all ready. I got to hide for a second and then poke my head back out here as I prepare my uh, little stand. I would leave this up, but then you wouldn't see the lovely ladies when they're singing, and uh, that wouldn't be fair to do to them, so I uh, keep it down below just in case. We have a lot going on today. As uh, Ken said, it's a Vision Sunday. And this is my first chance to uh, share Vision Sunday with you guys, so I'm excited to do that. I wish I could tell you that God has given me some amazing vision, but I think that what you find when we get to that portion of it is that God's already given us an amazing vision, and uh, all I'm going to do is have the privilege of sharing that amazing vision that God has already given to us. Um, what we'll do is we'll do a regular service here just so you kind of have a flow for this. I'm going to do Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 through 12, fairly expedited. And then I will finish with a small 10-minute session on uh, the vision. Then we'll conclude, hopefully, before 11. That'll be my goal. We'll have like a five-minute recess or a three-minute recess for you. If you're part of the church and you need to break, or if you're part of the church that don't want to be part of the annual meeting, give you a small break there. Then you come back in, here, come back in or stay where you are. And then we'll start the second half, which is uh, we're going to introduce the staff. We're going to introduce the elders we're going to introduce preschool. We're going to have a lot of different things that are all part of the annual budget. So whatever you're doing, just hang on. It's going to be a little bit of a ride this morning. It's okay. Uh, if you're shocking, I tell you my shocking. I went to Disneyland yesterday. I know, two and a half years, three years, right? I almost forgot what Disneyland was like. Um, they're celebrating their 100 year. We're celebrating 75 here. Their 100 year. And so on special before that, all items in the snack bar marked down to $100. So it was really exciting to me. So I was able to get a drink, uh, a small churro, and a couple of old little sliders for $123 with tax. But it was a fabulous deal. And I just want to encourage you right now, smuggle as much food as possible in. Do, do not bring a stack of cash and think it's going to work. It's not going to work out. No, but seriously, we, it was ridiculous. I think everything in there is just so overpriced and people are just so happy to be back out, right? I mean, I really was. At some point, I looked at the bill and I'm like, hey, we're at Disneyland. It's been like three years. So maybe that's a good sign of what's to happen. Uh, church has always been like that for me. I always feel, you, you know, we don't charge for church. So keep that in mind. For our 75th anniversary, we haven't charged. You can tithe whatever you want, but I mean, that's between you and God. I'm not going to go and check all that out, but anyways... Uh, thank you guys for allowing me to be part of it, and uh, like I said, if you have questions about anything, there'll be time and a place today for all the budgets and questions to be asked as well. So I'm going to be in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. I'm going to focus on the third critique that he's facing, which is adversity from within or criticism, and last week Rod showed you guys the first two, um, which were gossip and criticizing. So he's about to face, Nehemiah is about to face seven different critical issues uh, in trying to build a wall simultaneously. So regardless of what you think about answering a call, what Nehemiah is showing is even if God gives you a call and gives you a very specific task to do, one of the things that we're seeing in each one of these passages is it doesn't mean that he gets rid of problems or conundrums or issues. Instead, what you have to do is, uh, you know, the old saying, blessed are the flexible. You got to bend and you got to flow with it. Because as each one of these problems kind of come up and Nehemiah deals with it, what's happening is it's strengthening his resolve. And I couldn't help but think about this as a former athlete and a former kind of sports personnel. 
you know, when you're going against the enemy all the time, something happens. You and your teammates, and you're in the huddle, and you're going against your adversary, whoever that football team was we were going through. The more that other team challenged us, the more that other team did cheap fouls, or the more that other team kind of went after us and was talking trash at the line or whatever it was, inside of the huddle, a lot of the teamwork that was kind of formulating was really going to strengthen our resolve about, okay, hey, who's picking on you? Number 25 on the right-hand side? Okay, here's where we're going. We're going I right. 34 power, which meant we're going right at him. Let's go right at him and let's show him. And then every, ah, they're all screaming. Of course, they would go off sides because they weren't listening to what the actual count was on or something like that. But it was okay. We would just keep rallying and rallying. And one of the things I really loved about that is like, it feels like Nehemiah's rallying. Every time he goes through a problem, every time he goes through a conundrum, he rallies the troops back in and he says, hey, look, I understand that criticizing is part of life, but this is what God's word says. So this is what we can trust Hey, this is what we're going through today. Okay, this is what God's word says, and we can trust it. So he's going to have that same kind of idea. Stay with the team effort. Stay focused on what God is doing. And each time we go through that, the body gets stronger. And I can't help think of one final metaphor. And I mean, the same thing's kind of true with sickness, right? The more sickness we go through, the greater our immune system is. So think about that. This will be really helpful, too, by the time we get to the vision statement. The church as the body of Christ, right? The more we go through, the more adversity we go through together, the stronger we become. Now, the second part of the passage I'm going to leave for your small groups, uh, 13 through 19, is also another conundrum. It's temptation. The temptation to take advantage of people. So if you're doing small group studies and you're looking for some challenge on that, you guys can work on that one. 13 through 19, the second part of this passage will be on temptation. Along with that right now, I should also let you know, he's halfway through the wall. Chapter 5, he goes halfway through the wall, so he's 1.25 miles done. He has six of the 12 gates done, and he's officially ready to move on. So this is what we got with chapter 5. If you're ready to read, I'm ready to attempt reading. All right, here we go. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. And some were saying... We and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. And others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So along with building a wall, note right there is a famine is going on. You know, not look if there's enough adversity and enough distractions, but now add to it, there's a famine in the land. Verse 5, although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And yes, I'm breaking out glasses. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Verse 6. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are executing an usury from our own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought, brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Nine. So I continued, what are you doing? What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people money and grain. But let the exacting of the usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. 
and the usury and the charge that you're putting on them, the hundredth part of the money, the grain, the new wine and oil. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests, excuse me, I summoned the priests and made nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So once again, he's at the beginning of restoring this wall. He's at the beginning of kind of halfway getting everything done. He's got enough problems going on to, to sink most people, yet he continues to have to deal with a problem. And today's problem is the people are crying out as a whole, right? They're coming up to him, the men and women, the whole family, and a great outcry is coming to him. And he's like, guys, look, we've already accomplished so much. They're going to build the wall in 52 weeks, so they're about halfway through. And they're halfway through, and they're like, hey, we've already accomplished so much. Why are you letting this uh, situation get to you? And he goes, it's one thing when other people take advantage of us, right? But today, the internal problem we're talking about. It's one thing when the problems are external. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah were external forces, okay? But what we're finding out today is these are internal forces. These are fellow Jews. And these fellow Jews are not just taking advantage of us, but they're taking advantage at an opportunist time. And I couldn't help but think about that just for the very start of today. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, when people were going through a difficulty, people found that time and the place to take advantage of them. And I think about, okay, speed forward to 2,000 years later, and look at us. Has anything changed? Right? Think about it. Any time we go through something, think about like every single time it's vacation time, and you want to drive somewhere. And mysteriously, the gas prices go from whatever the normal price is to two and three times more than that on the weekend we want to drive somewhere. Think about it during flood or famine. People take advantage of people. Think about people come out to help them and clean them up, and then we find out people are looting people whose homes have been destroyed. People have an interesting conundrum in life, and that is we think like some of these things are going to go away. But this has been going on from the beginning of time. People always want to take advantage of the downtrodden. And what Nehemiah is saying in this passage right now is that if you want to take advantage of someone, especially if you want to take advantage of someone when they're downtrodden, the results of that is for Nehemiah in chapter, in verse 5, he says, I'm going to be very angry about that. Because the idea here was they weren't just anyone, they were God's people. With the famine already going on in the land, and all the other things, the criticism, the gossip, all the other problems they had to deal with, why would Jews take advantage of Jews? These families were large families that were building on the wall. These families had lots of different things. And basically what they had to do was mortgage everything they had to get money. Now, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this this weekend with my family and my own mortgage and my own home. Imagine if the very neighbors that you were living with, one day you had to mortgage your own home to them. And you're, it was, let's say it was someone in your neighborhood that was doing well and it was a really difficult time around here. And instead of the very people that you were once working with, now you're working for them, and they owned your home. They owned your vineyard. They owned whatever it was. And instead of feeling like a homeowner and having that kind of you know, blessing of that, now you had the burden of just feeling like you were a slave, enslaved in your own land. I, food does weird things to people. Like I said, I was at Disneyland. Food does weird things to people, so you're really willing to do whatever it takes to get food, right? And so these people were willing to do whatever it took. And the result of that, they were selling off their own land. And he says, slavery for their own people. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible intended. And so when the great outcry came out for Nehemiah, the problem that he had is there's a problem with this, that that's not what God intended when it came to taking advantage or even helping people out with issues, especially when it came to borrowing money or lending money. The Bible actually has some very clear passages for them to realize that if they were going to lend money to one another, they had to lend money without the opportunity to gain interest. You could lend money, but no interest to your fellow countrymen. And that's not what they were doing. 
They had worked all the way through external threats. They had worked all the way through gossip. They worked all the way through with these other things. And now what they were realizing is their own people were randomly being completely ransacked. Fellow countrymen. And Nehemiah said, you know what? I'm angry. Not the kind of anger that gets you in trouble, but I couldn't help but think about it. I think it's more like the kind of anger that Jesus had when Jesus saw people in the temple taking advantage of people who came to give tithes. Right? Jesus only has two times in the Bible where he shows anger. One of the times is when he's at the temple, when he sees people, the money changers, taking advantage of people. Why would you take advantage of people in the house of God, right? And he goes over there and he doesn't bump the tables, like he turns the tables over and says, no, not in my father's house. The second time that we see Jesus showing this righteous anger is when the small children kind of gathered around. Jesus and the disciples are in this area and the small children start kind of gathering around Jesus. And the disciples decide that the small children are kind of an inconvenience to Jesus. And so they try to shoo the small children away from him. And Jesus rebukes his very own disciples and says, you should not shoo away these children for such is the kingdom of God, right? And I can't help but Nehemiah thinking about this. He's like, look, we've been through a lot of different things, but every time we get into a situation, no matter what changes, like God's word doesn't change. If we would just stand on what God's word says, we wouldn't be divided. And one of the things that I'm definitely getting from this point in the passage is, Anytime something seeks to divide the body of God, whatever that situation is, it could be internal. In this case, it is definitely internal. Whatever that force is, but if it, see, if it seeks to divide the body of God, it's something that we should be on the lookout for. The enemy always comes to divide. There is, there is no greater advantage for him than to divide us. And so Nehemiah responds by first saying this, he pondered. He pondered, which means he thought. And then he responded, what should I do? Before I speak to these wealthy people that are actually the ones that are in charge of this whole kind of rebuilding, before I speak to them, I should think. So that's another note I can give you guys. Before you guys speak to someone, regardless of what the situation is, when you realize there's a critical situation and you need to respond to that, ponder for a moment. Think. Supplicate. Take a moment to kind of ask the Lord, okay, I see something happening here. I see something that's not right, and I need to address it. But before I address it with my own personal feelings... Lord, would you speak into this situation? Would you speak to me clearly what you would have me to say? He ponders for a moment, and he gets a drink. And then he says, I gathered them all together. I'm going to gather them all together, and I'm going to put them in a situation where I'm going to speak the truth to them, and then I'm going to let the word of God be the judge upon them, right? I'm going to gather everybody together and say, hey, look, you guys know better than what you're doing. Matter of fact, you not only know better, but you can see what it's actually causing. Now you're causing division in the body of God. Why would you guys do this? And when he gathers them together and confronts them, something very interesting happens. What happens is they say nothing, right? And so that's another good little inside point for you too. When, you do, when you're confronted by someone who's attacking you, when you're confronted by someone who's doing something that you know is not of God, and you ponder and you think about what you're going to actually say to them, once you actually speak the truth, make sure you speak it in love. Wait. Give that pause in there. Allow the word of God to speak. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth into the situation. Because if it's not of you, then, then what you're actually saying to him is, you know what, I understand how you're dealing with me, but I don't think that's what the word of God says. And then share with them what the word of God says and then wait. And allow the spirit of God to speak to them. And the result was instantly, in verse 10 said, they kept silent. They didn't know how to respond. Then they, then they determined they needed to stop it. Then they determined they needed to make plans to fix it. 
and then they became submissive to actually fix it. That's pretty good results, right? I mean, from not knowing what to do about the situation to saying, okay, I'm angry about it. Okay, God, what would you have me do about it? Okay, I'm going to gather everyone, and then I'm going to speak the truth to them, and then what's going to happen? And I think that's a really good encouragement for all of us, is the reality is sometimes we really want to solve problems. Sometimes we really want to fix problems. But sometimes we really need to stand down and let the Lord fix the problems, because in the end, we are what? The Lord's people. Here's an interesting observation from that passage. When God reveals something to us, what should our response be? And I put urgency and thoughtfulness. Urgency and thoughtfulness. Because the reality is, I don't know what you're going through right now. We're all kind of going through different conundrums. We all have our own battles to fight. We all have our, he's got seven critical things that he has to deal with. And when we go through these battles, what exactly you're hoping to accomplish in your battle? If the Lord says, I'm using all things for my glory, right? Romans 8, I'm I'm using all things for my glory. If I'm going to use all things for my glory, what is God actually allowing this conundrum? This time it's an internal attack. Why would God allow this attack to happen? So Nehemiah thinks about it and he thinks, okay, because our resolve, because no matter what we do, no matter what happens to us, one thing needs to keep on keeping on. And what's that? Keep, Keep on building. Keep building, right? And think about that. Everything that happens to us right now, no matter what we talk about today, I'm going to get to the vision here in about a few minutes, not even that, 10 more minutes, I'll get to the vision. No matter what we do in this church today, church, I can tell you this, no matter what happens to us, no matter what the attacks are, whether they're internal, whether they're external, whether you're friends, whether you're family, whether it's your mother, your father, whatever the situation is, if if its goal is to divide us and distract us from the main thing, then it wins. It doesn't matter how important it was intended to be or should be. If it, if it keeps us from doing the main thing, keeping the main thing the main thing, it's a problem. So Nehemiah says, hey, look, I'm just going to, my urgency and my thoughtfulness is keep building. We have a call, and no matter what, and you notice there's times where they actually have to build with their hands on the sword. Okay, that doesn't feel very building to me with one hand available. Right? But the idea was there was times when the enemy was so at hand is that's what was required, is to build with one hand on the sword. So we need to be flexible. We need to realize that all these different situations are going to come and go. But we have to look different in the end. The goal was to we have to look different than the Gentiles that are around us. If, we, if, our, if our life doesn't represent anything different than the people that are around us, if we act like everyone that's around us, then we've, we've cannibalized our faith. And that's why in verse 9 he says, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you fear our God? In other words, if if our God has told us how we're supposed to be lending, the way we lend is without interest. What's interesting about that is they wouldn't have a problem lending to someone who was a non-believer with interest. But amongst the flock, it was without interest, exclusively. In other words, to say, hey, if God has blessed us, we need to bless one another and care for one another. But if we take advantage of uh, of our own brothers and sisters, that's a problem. If we have this fear of God, then we realize something. When we walk with God or walk under God's protection, then God is responsible for leading us. But when we walk outside of that protection, okay, when we're willing to say, you know what, I know what God has called me to do, but I'm going to try this, then we not only do we walk outside of God's protection, but we walk outside of his leadership. And we walk alone. And Nehemiah said, that's not how it's supposed to be. Our faith affects everyone. Our faith and how we're living right here in Jerusalem is going to affect all the other believers. So what needs to be done? 
So Nehemiah takes the lead, and in verse 10, he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Me and these other guys that are with me, we're going to start lending. We're going to start lending to the people. We're going to show you guys how to do this. We are going to lend without interest. And when we lend without interest, we will lead the way. So follow our lead. What is the lead again? We're just simply following what the scripture says. To loan money without interest has already been established. It was established in Deuteronomy 23:19. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned. That's it. That's the rule. And I, 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 I don't know about you guys, but I'm one of those guys that I'm a big fan of simplicity. When God's word says it, we used to say it. God says it, and that's good enough for me, right? When God's word says something and it's super clear, and we still decide, well, we're going to try to finagle with that and make it work, whatever we're trying to do. It's like, that's not the goal here. The goal is just to understand. The reason why you're in hardship right now is because some of you have and some of you don't have. But if, if those of you had took care of the, those that have not, then the body of Christ would be blessed together. And I just want to encourage you that, like, as a church, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about this church is we're a very giving church. And when we give to somebody, when we give to someone through the funds, the benevolence funds in this church, we don't require it back. Not only do we not require it back, but we don't ever give to someone under the pretense of, this is what you have, if you could pay a portion back, or just say, nothing. The whole point of benevolence is simply to say, we understand that you have a need, we've prayed about that need, and we want to meet that need without any, without any attachment whatsoever. And there's a way that the church has to lead, and there's a way that God is saying, if we did that, then what do we avoid? Division. Division. In the end, if we really start thinking of the church as a body, and I know at times you guys have heard, well, you're the church, and you're the church. So that means in the front row there's three churches. But that's, that could be dangerous, right? Because there's already like 28,300 and something denominations right now. So I think we've already gone a little bit far from the Catholic Church, which means universal church, and then the, the Protestant Church was the protesting church, Martin Luther's protest of the Catholic Church, right? The two denominations to where we are today. You see what I'm saying? If we just keep dividing and everyone thinks it's about you, you can see where that's problematic. But if, the, if you make consideration for what the Bible says, it says Jesus is the head of the church, and we are its body. And though we are many parts and pieces, we serve one function. Okay, well, that makes a little bit more sense. Now, when I think about how division works, if I can tell the hand, hey, you're, you're more important than the eyes, and pretty soon the hand says, I'm more important than the eyes, and covers my eyes and says, you can't do any, you see what I'm saying? It's problematic. The body needs to work together, and all parts and pieces need to appreciate what they're doing. You say, well, pastor, you're this part, and I'm that part. Yeah, but if every part doesn't play its own role, right? If the body doesn't do its whole component... Think about what happens to your body when one part doesn't work, right? Any of you that are sick today, I mean, think about it. One simple component in your body doesn't work, and, it's, and it slows us all down. Great division. So what does the devil want to do with that? He wants to divide. He wants to come in and find something, whether it's nitpicking or naysaying or uh, criticism, whatever it is. He distracts you from the cause. He distracts you from the cause, which we're going to come to in a second here. The cause is you know, for the sake of building. This time the cause is building. And anything he can do to get you to turn your head, turn your head away from it, right? Just focus on the task that's in front of you and then make sure you're ready to go if the attack does come. And Nehemiah says in verse 11, give it all back. Give it all back. Matter of fact, don't just give it back. Give it back with interest. 
And so the, the interest would have been the 1% of the money that they had taken. And when they, ha- when they hear this in verse 12, they respond, we will, without any demands. Now, I can't help but think about what that would have done for the encouragement of the group at that time, right? It starts off in verse 1 with this great outcry, and I'm sure this was a period of time that this conversation is taking place. But when they finally get to the point that the nobles have been gathered, the people, the discussions, the discussions have taken place, the accountability has been placed on them, and they humble themselves before God, and they say, we will. Not, not only will we give it all back, but we'll give it back with 1% interest. Imagine what it's like to be restored now. Some of you in this building have maybe have had a loan and had that loan completed. You know that feeling when your loan's completed? I remember when Jen and I were making the school payments on our kids' loans, and we had a pretty good chunk of money, and we sent all three of our kids to college, and we had all three of their debts stacked up on a, on a computer one night, and we, we said, we're ready to do this. And in five minutes, I spent more money than I had made in an entire year just pushing pay, 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 pay. She's like, how many have one word? Pay, pay. And then I realized all of our money was gone. But you know what else was gone? All of our debt. And we were broke, but we were still in love and we we're still married and still happy. And we had officially paid for all three of our kids' college. And there's a sense of kind of like getting out of that and getting back to like, hey, we own it again, like it's ours, right? And there was a sense of like a euphoria and that I couldn't help but these guys probably were pretty excited about, hey, it's ours again. It's my vineyard again, you know? It's our land. Now, if there was a jubilee involved, they would have got it back within 50 years. But I mean, at this point in time, they would, they would have been working under that usury for a long time. Additionally, if you guys noticed in that whole passage too, the king decided to tax them. I find that interesting. The king had already sent Nehemiah back to build, right? And now the king is also realizing as they build, oh, this is one of the places that caused me a lot of irritation. I'm going to tax them. It's just, if it's not one thing or it's another, and uh, you guys are going to get it from all sides, but just stay focused on the Lord. Because in the end, what ultimately Nehemiah learned was this. Conundrums are going to come conundrums are going to go situations are going to come situations are going to go problems are going to come problems are going to go but that does not stop you from having to answer the call in your life now the question is what is the call and i don't know about you but it makes a beautiful transition for me to talk about call because i believe that the call for everyone involved in the body of christ is the same now we're going to do it differently and that's fine but the call should be the same and that's why when i say to you I would like to talk to you now about vision. Let me ask you a simple question. How many of you like complexity? Would you like a math? I could put up like a math theory and signs and a vision of what is kind of... No, okay. I don't think in nation, 100% zero. Zero complexity for me. I don't think I'm a guy of complexity, but I think that what we've missed out when it comes to vision is that why would Christ set up the church and not give it instructions of what to do? I think the complexity for me has come in a passage like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I think the problem for most churches is that we, the guy who's up front, whoever that person up front is, they want to be the person saying, well, this is what God has called me to do, so come join me as I go do what God has called me to do. And I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous because... I think God has called all of us to do something. 
And so rather than me say, you guys come join me in something, I want you guys to let's all join together in what God has already called us, the church, to do. Now, if you hadn't realized that the church has a problem, then I looked up a couple of stats for you. Eight billion plus people on the planet Earth right now. As of today, eight billion. Of that, 2.5 are estimated to be Christians. Another 0.5, plus or minus, depending on denominational understanding. So let's say 3 billion are assumed Christians based by denominational faith and tenets of faith that we have. That leaves an estimated 5 billion people unsaved. I don't know about you, but if it was 4 billion people unsaved, it would be a problem for me. If it was 3 billion people, it would be a problem for me. And it doesn't matter how many billions are unsaved, it's a problem for me. And I think it should be a problem for you. I think it should keep you up at night like it keeps me up at night. Because the reality is, for an unsaved person to be saved, they need something. You know what they need? They need us. They need the hands and feet of Christ to live out the call that God has placed on his body. Now, what's so important about God being the body is that we don't have to do all the thinking. We don't have to be the creative one that comes up with it. And that's a real blessing to me because I'm simple. I like simple. Go fish. What do you want me to catch? Catch halibut. Okay, that's all I need to know. Get back to me in 24 hours. I will do whatever it takes to go find the halibut, catch the halibut, and bring the halibut to you. Okay? Because Jesus is the head of the church. I started looking up a couple of very interesting facts. A truth that is missed, I wrote this down, Ephesians 5, a truth that is missed regularly is when it comes to church leadership, we often assume that we are somehow in control of the church. But the fact is that Jesus claims to be the head of the church. And just as the head is over the body, then he goes on to say that we are the body. That means that Jesus is over the church. Does that make sense? He also is the savior of the church and the only one that has the ability to rule and reign over it. If he's the savior of the church, it should also be noted that he freely gave to the church its idea of headship. So it's Jesus who says, you are my body and I am over you. So as the head speaks, listen, the mouth, the ears, it's all part of the head. This is all part of what Jesus is needing to speak to us. He is the one that determined when the church would begin in Acts. Jesus, right? He's there for the institution of the church. So he is the chief shepherd. The elders that we have, myself, we're all part of that leadership, but we're under his headship. For those of you who don't understand headship, when you're under someone's headship, then that, that means you're under their protection and their leadership. When you step out from their protection, then you're under your headship and your leadership. And he says, when you stay here, there's a promise I give you, that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That's powerful stuff. I think Rod said last week, if God says it and God has something for me, then I want that. And I was like, yeah, I want that too, because he is the chief shepherd. He appointed the apostles. He appointed the first leaders. He has determined church leadership. He has built the structure in church leadership. Look up 1 Timothy 3. He has grown the church at his pleasure. He sanctifies the church. He loves and nourishes the church, Ephesians 5. He sent the Holy Spirit to intercede and direct the church, 
right? The paraclete, the one who walks alongside of us, so that we would know the truth. Because we're not the head, how can we know? We're just body parts. We could know because he's put the Spirit of God in the Holy Spirit, and that we would have that opportunity to know. He also has promised to return for his church. John 14. And that's why the church should follow the leadership of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.24. So for me to stand in front of you and say, I believe that God has given me a vision would be not only inaccurate, but be usurping the authority of the head of the church. I have no vision for the church and no other understanding than what Jesus has already given us as the body of Christ. And he has given us a left and a right for us to do battle with. Okay? The left is the great commandment. The right is the great commission. And within that, we hold fast, and we do, and we work, and we build, and we labor, and we do everything under these two things, and watch how this unfolds. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it by loving the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's a condensing of 613 laws down to two. How do you do it? All in. Okay? All in. What part of all in? All heart. All mind. All soul. That's the fullness of who you are, by the way. It's cool because it's kind of like a representation of the Trinity. It's the fullness of who you are. When you serve at the church, when you tithe to the church, when you give, when you work, when you labor, when you read, you, you should read all in. Because that's the commission. That's the commandment that he's given you. And then what is it that you should do all in? Every church should have this. Now, how many of you know our purpose of our church? We actually have a purpose statement. Any of you know it? To make disciples who love God, love one another, and love their community. The key to that component is here. Make disciples. All in to do what? Go, therefore. Go, therefore. And do what? And make disciples. Make disciples. What? And then do what? Well, if you've made disciples, you need to baptize them. Right? It's, a, it's following a line of commission. The go is the same word in Greek as traverse. It's a mountaineering term. How do you get up a mountain? You have to traverse. If you try to attack the mountain straight up, you'll run out of energy. But as you're going through life, the people you're going through life with, the people at the grocery store, the gym, the people you work with, the people in your family, your oikos, that's what your oikos is. I think originally you guys heard it was your sphere of influence, but actually oikos is it's God's sphere of influence. God's sphere of influence is different than yours. In your sphere of influence, you have influence on who you meet, and where you go and what you do. In God's fear, you have no influence on that. God gets to control that. And how many of you know that for a fact? I mean, I have no control on who I get to meet and how I get to meet him, so I'm just looking for God to bring people in my life and I can share with. But what am I actually doing with? I'm doing it all in to make disciples. It's all about making disciples. Why? Because there's plus or minus 5 billion people unsaved. That means there's a lot of room in heaven and a lot of people are willingly or unwillingly or some form of the combination because no one's brought them the good news. Like, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news, right? There's a reason why it's a blessing, because you bring them the opportunity to say, hey, I want to confront you with your mortality. I want to confront you with what the world already knows to be the greatest fear. 
what is there after life? You're making a huge risk if you want to think there's nothing after life. Do not make that risk without hearing what I have to share. And what am I going to share? My testimony. Everyone's testimony is different, but everyone's testimony is their way of sharing the Great Commission. This is what God did for me. When God did this for me when I was 14 years old, it changed my life. And as I stand here today as a 57-year-old man, I still wake up every morning thinking, thank you, God, for salvation. How can I repay that back to you today? By making disciples, Jeff. Anything else that you do other than make disciples, is, it's fine. Mary and Martha principle. There's important things to do at a, at a function, but there's nothing more important than sitting at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's going to instruct you on how to make disciples. Making disciples, church, is the only vision a church should ever have because you are the body of Christ and he is the head, and that's what the head is telling the body to do. And what happens when the head and the body don't listen to each other? Sickness. Adversity, infirmity, right? I don't want to recreate something that's already been created. If the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then who am I to stand in front of it and say, you know what, let's do something different. There's lots of good things a church can do. Lots of them. But there's only one great thing that we can do. Thus the term great commission. Go, make, baptize, and teach. If we do that, another great person, wise person once, Tozer said in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the first thing that comes to God is the most important thing for your relationship with him. For by the first thing that comes to your knowledge about God, for all other things will be seen. It's called the cipher. Okay? So for me, evangelism. I only speak, I only know one word, evangelism. I have to go and I have to make wherever I'm going, wherever I'm doing, even yesterday at Disneyland, I reached out to someone and gave them a hug. Whatever we do, however we're doing it, whenever we're doing it, we need to do it all in with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, so that we can make disciples. And if we're making disciples, the truth of us making disciples is that square piece of wood won't be up there all the time. It will have to come down so that we can do what? We can baptize them, and then we baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That same trinity that tells us how to work and operate, raised to a new life in Christ, right? And then their testimony, that first public affirmation of their testimony, is spoken. You just experienced that recently, John, right? It's life-changing, okay? It's just like the wedding ceremony when you put this ring on. How important is this? It's really important, important to the person that you're professing faith to, Right? And it only ultimately really matters to that person. And that's kind of like what we do with baptism is we're professing our faith. We're professing our love to someone who's unseen to the world. We're saying, it's unseen to you, but it's seen to me. And this is what it means to me. Is wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm going to do it all for him. My, with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. And I'm going to try to help make believers. I'm going to try to help make followers of Christ. And then once we're done baptizing, once we're done doing that, we can teach. Church, you can't teach someone until you've brought them into the saving knowledge of the word of God. The encouragement of God's word is once you've made believers, they're going to be hungry for God's word. If you're not hungry for God's word, then maybe this morning you should realize something. Church and donuts. There's a reason why we have donuts at church. And delicious coffee. Steve, you guys, thank you, Kelly. Kelly, your, your decorations are equally as fabulous, by the way. 
We have to have a hunger for the things of God. Now, I have a hunger and a problem for maple bars. So I should probably publicly confess that right now. Robin knows that. Now, she brings a maple bar, and she knows I'll empty trash. I'll do all kinds of things. You give me a maple bar, Pastor Jeff is off and running. Imagine if we had that same kind of hunger for evangelism. You say, you know what, Pastor Jeff, you, you love it, and you're comfortable speaking, and you do all that. And so that's you. Remember where the mouth actually is on the, on the reference to the body? The head has the mouth. All I need to speak is the name of Jesus. All you need to speak is the name of Jesus. All you need to confirm is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to the Father unless through him. There is no other way. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's pretty myopic and narrow. Yes, it is. That's why it's called the way. There is no other way. He says, I am the way. Church, we don't need to recreate what's already been said. We just need to believe that. And we need to share with people that and show people that. And when we do, the world around us will have walls being built, but not for anything of our own glory. But remember, he has to build the walls so that Jerusalem can be there for whose glory? His glory. And I will make my name great to the world through this place. Jeannie brought a poster. It's out there in the lobby of what Jerusalem looks like with the wall today, just so you can kind of get a scope of what that picture actually looks like. Two and a half miles, 40 foot tall, eight foot thick, 12 gates. One of the things you'll notice on that is all the gates are all sealed up right now. They're kind of in a different place right now, Israel is. So even if God wants to return, he's going to have to kick down some, some, kick down some gates to return. But you know what you can't stop? Anything that's said in God's word from happening. And if he said it, it's going to happen. And whether or not you believe it or whether or not I believe it, it's a non sequitur. It's going to happen. So let's just get on the same page. Since he said it, it's good enough. And whether or not you can explain the Trinity or I can explain the Trinity, in the end, all I need to say is Jesus. Jesus is the Trinity. If you know Jesus, then you know everything you know. From Jesus, everything else can flow. If you really knew Jesus and your life was really given to Jesus and you were wholeheartedly in all heart, all mind, all soul into Jesus, then everything would flow. One final thing. There's a new movie coming out, uh, the Jesus movement, like uh, Chuck Smith's church. I just saw the trailer for that. I couldn't help but think of something that we live in a town. We live, California just is so crazy. At Disneyland, I didn't realize the Wright Brothers started like in San Diego. We live in a place that's like so focal to so many different things. Calvary's movement is something, whether you love it or you don't love it or you don't, the movement of what that guy actually did when he reached out to a group of people, the hippies, it's like it, it only takes one person to see something that's already in front of us every single day, and we've already kind of written it off, right? And Chuck's church is struggling, and Chuck is trying to figure out what to do, and just one conversation somehow allows him to see something that's been there the whole time and just see it anew, and it created a whole world where there's Calvaries all over the world. Now, whether you love Calvaries or are confused by Calvaries, not, not important to me. God's working through them. God's working through his body, and his body has many different parts and pieces and many different functions. But I just want to encourage you with one final, you know, stuff right now is it's probably in front of you. There's probably things right now that are in front of you, and you just, you don't see them. 
And I think what I would encourage you today is when you pray about God's vision for the church, when you pray about God's vision for your component and what you need to do, first just pray this, God, help me get to be all in. I'm done with being partially in. I partially go to church. I, I partially give. Some people consider giving like, oh, I give what's in my pocket. Learn what tithing is. Learn what serving is. Learn the different things. If you don't know, come talk to someone who can help you. Learn what we're being required of to be a follower of Christ. And then just, just go all in. Try a 30-day all-in component with faith. And when the problems blow up in your faith and the conundrums get even worse, and you have to ask yourself, is this really what it's all about? Then I'm going to tell you, yes, it's what it's all about. If things aren't blowing up all around you, I mean, real life and real ministry is messy because we're messy. And this candy-coated faith that we've kind of come up with where everyone's really cordial and casual and nothing really happens, like, dive in. Go all in. Why? So you can make disciples. And sometimes that's just making the disciple next to you realize, like, hey, man, you've got a job to do. Hey, you've got a job to do. You've got to do your job in order for this body to function. Because that's what the head said. Go do this, and this is what I want you to do. Make disciples. Do you realize that the average Christian, one out of 10 believers will actually lead someone to the Lord? One out of 10. 90% of believers will never actually walk someone into faith. 90% of people will never walk someone into faith. That, that's like saying it's just the pastor's job. It's your job to bring your community, your flock to the faith that God has given you, but you can do it too. How do you do it? Just share your faith, share your story, share your testimony. It was good enough for you. It's good enough for him, right? I mean, in the end, people love to change their wedding vows. Josh and Jenna did a beautiful wedding, and the guys wrote their own vows. I mean, in the end, your vows are really important to who? One another, right? Our vows, our, our testimony is just a vow to Jesus saying, hey, I was a sinner, and I was having issues, and you came and saved me, and I wasn't worthy, and I woke up that next morning, and I realized, I got I to gotta do something different. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God is telling me, no, you don't live like that anymore. As I conclude this service for this part, and we will transition to the next part, I want to just pray and ask God to reveal to you this morning, what is it that's causing you to be stuck? What is it that's causing you to live not as someone who's been freed, but someone who's still in slavery, enslaved by their bondage. What is it that's holding on to you? Because the vision that God has given the church is cut and dry and simple. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Whatever else you're doing in life, whatever reason you're doing it for, make peace with it. But whatever you're doing, if you're not making disciples along the way, how else can you love God, love your love one another, and love your community. How, can you, how else can you do that if you're not making disciples? It's impossible. Father God, first and foremost, we just acknowledge simply this today, that this is your church. This has never been our church. For 75 years, it would have been a huge mistake to think that somehow this was our church and that these people are our people. We are yours. We have been yours, and we will forever be yours. We are followers of Christ. We are not followers of Lighthouse Church. We are followers of Christ. You are the head of the church. You are the heart of the church. You are the soul of the church. And we are simply parts of that body. And I pray this morning, Father, that your spirit would reach out to everyone that's here this morning to reach out to those people watching online and listening online and saying, well, what about me? Yes, you. 
you listening, whenever you hear this message, you are part of the body of God, and you too have a call and a commission on your life to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and to also go and make disciples. Building a wall, Father, was simply just a metaphor for what Nehemiah was called to do. He was called to answer the call in life. Father, be with this church in the next 75 years of our ministry. Be with this church to truly have a high regard for salvation and the opportunity to see the lost come to Christ. And if there's anyone in this building today or anyone that hears this message today that does not know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then I pray that today would be the day that they would find someone. Send us an email, call us on the phone, or go talk to that person in your life that you know knows Christ and have them walk you through. It's always different. It's never the same, but it's as simple as saying, Lord, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Make yourself my king. Father, thank you for the opportunity to do everything and say everything in the name above all names, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That concludes the service three-minute interlude for you to get up, stretch it out. If you're still here in three minutes and you're new and you want to know what's going on in the church, you can find out. But we want to encourage all the members to just make sure you're still here. Otherwise, thank you guys for coming today. God bless. Have a wonderful service. And uh, I look forward to talk with you in three minutes. Okay. Don't.